0: It is just past 7 o'clock, and start getting excited. Time for Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira is here next to me, and Ira, it's kind of exciting, isn't it? Of course, this, uh, this entire world is kind of up in a standstill right now, but we're slowly but surely
1: getting sports back, and I am thrilled. I know you are too. Well, I'm I'm very thrilled. I mean, I watched uh, NASCAR this weekend. I watched golf this weekend. <laughs> yep. We we hear reports about things opening up. So in terms of in terms of sports, so it was great to see and UFC. So I had three live different sporting events and uh, sort of like the last chapter of the last dance was just awesome. And whenever someone does a poll and it's like 80% support Jordan and 20% LeBron, then it sort of validates my opinion that <laughs> LeBron, that Jordan is the number one all time goat. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit.
0: Also, we're going to have Joan Ryan on. And, and you did this interview, um, a, about a week ago, but this is a, an author and a book that you've been telling everybody you meet about. So tell us a little bit about Joan
1: Ryan. I'm obsessed with this book. I must, I'm going to, I should get a percentage of book sales because I've been pushing <laughs> this to everybody. It's the, uh, soul of teen chemistry. It's called Intangibles. And what's so interesting about this book is that she goes into the, we've had a lot of like the key flaw. We've had some of these, uh, people on the show that have been analytic driven. Mm-hmm. And so she's talks in her book about, asking, is there team chemistry? It's like, no, let's just put it like fantasy. Everything's fantasy. Like, there's no yep. team chemistry. We're talking about fantasy football and basketball. There's no team chemistry when you're a fantasy team. And a lot of people are running their teams thinking there's no team chemistry at all. However, um, she then went through a whole details of whether there's chemistry and what causes chemistry and then to sit with the whole Barry Bonds team and, and, and Jeff mm-hmm. Kent and talk about how chemistry is there. And then she analyzes different people on the teams, like what type of they are and, and what they add to the team. And so it's really interesting. And I just love team chemistry and I love talking about it and she is just – this is a great groundbreaking book. And you're not going to want to miss that. That's going to happen right about 7.30 here on Ira on Sports. Ira,
0: before we get into uh, all we have to talk about, you had an interesting week yourself. Um, you were on arguably the biggest sports radio network and sports TV network in the country, WGN.
1: Yeah, Mark Carmen who we had on last week invited me to come on the Bulls uh the WGN which is based in Chicago 7:20 a.m. And, and if anyone knows 7:20 it's like besides being on the internet it is you can hear the signal from almost to New York in in, in, South, in North Florida
0: you can pick up WGN Chicago on <laughs> AM.
1: So, it was great. I mean, they 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 backed me up a little bit because Mike McCaskey, the former president of the Bears had died so they brought in guests. So, but it was great. I was on for 20 minutes. I was talking about my story about getting my ticket uh to the uh to the Bulls for game I was there the games three, four, and five, and they loved it. They thought it was a great, interesting story about being at the game, and it was shocking. Even Mark said to me, he goes, I don't know people that went to game six because it was very difficult because, I, as I mentioned before, Friday night, the, the, the game was over. There's like two flights out of Chicago to go to Salt mm-hmm. Lake City, so if you're a Bulls fan in Chicago, it's not like, oh, let's just go to Salt Lake, and they didn't think they were going to lose, so suddenly they lost, and then the game is on Sunday afternoon. There's no flights out Sunday, so really, I was, because I had been smart enough to buy my ticket early, <laughs> my play case. ticket, just in case, then I was uh, prepared to go to Salt Lake. So he's like, I haven't really met people that that didn't work for the Bulls organization that if you see the fans, they're showing the game six on TV mm-hmm. and they're going to replay this game on Wednesday. I mean, you are see very few Bulls fans in attendance at all.
0: And, and it made sense. You actually, you're a columnist for the Altoona Mirror and you, did a great job explaining why there were no, t- or why there were so many tickets available but no flights. It was really cool how that worked out for you and you got to get a piece of history that we're going to talk about in just a second.
1: Right, right. So I have a, so if you go on Iron Sports on uh, on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, I have all of those things at the stories. I tried to put the Mark Harmon interview up mm-hmm. there. So it's great. I love I love being the resident Jordan Bowles 98 finals expert. I guess that came for something. Oh, it was going to be neat. Uh, they're going to do a 30 for 30 McGuire Sosa mm-hmm. in like three weeks. I didn't Nothing with Lance Armstrong, which are the next two weeks. But I was at the game that Maguire tied uh, Maris at really? 61. And I was at 62. And I cannot wait to start writing and telling stories about that. And I have the best pictures for those things.
0: Is it crazy you've been in – you were probably at more Jordan Finals games than Scotty Pippen. <laughs> it's funny how that worked out. So let's talk about it. And this Jordan last dance has really taken over the sports landscape for the past month because it's all we have really. And Ira, how many people, athletes – can you do a 10 part documentary on that would be interesting. There's just not that many people as enthralling as Michael Jordan. And we got to watch it all.
1: I was scared when they said it's going to be what's really five nights, but it's two hours. And I was like, that's just way too much. That's going to be way too much time to talk about it. I didn't think that there was going to be enough to cover. And I'm like, people are going to get bored. And I think from the ratings every week, it just keeps getting more and more and more. And everyone's talking so perfectly. It was great. I'm so, I mean, I've been a Jordan fan from forever. And I was getting nervous there when LeBron was winning these titles. And I'm like, LeBron's going to pass Jordan. And then... And when you see this I'm like if you're a LeBron right now like you're just like what not only am I not playing and winning my fourth title but the point is that I'm now Jordan comes from the whatever the ghost of Jordan comes back and and is doing this like if you're Maris trying to be, go after Bruce's <laughs> record and, and then or like uh, and then Ruth comes back and starts you know hitting home runs and the is the, whatever but it's crazy but uh, for LeBron I'm sure he's extremely frustrated that that people are brought back to seeing Jordan and, and the way Jordan did it and it, it wasn't just a it's not just a movie. It's like the interviews with Jordan and talking and, and you're seeing the fierceness from Jordan. The fact that he's been, he's not been a commentator. He hasn't been on TV. He doesn't, I mean, no one's seen this. him talk. He goes to the North Carolina game and speaks at halftime for three minutes and people think that's like amazing and then they have mem- memes of those things. So <laughs> it's just great to see Jordan talk for how many hours he they were interviewing him for. Yeah, I
0: mean really the only other thing I could think of was with Stuart Scott and what was that, like 1998? He really hasn't <laughs> talked about his career or anything since then. So it was great we- got to sit down and spend uh, 10 hours you know, g- pouring through everything that happened with Michael Jordan. So l- let's talk about it. You want to go right to the uh, the 98 finals here?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was there. I was g- at games three and four. Three, the Bulls won. They showed on the last dance last night. They won. They were It was, it was 1-1 and they at the game three, they, they won 96-54. It was one of the craziest games. The Jazz only scored nine points in the fourth quarter and Great. it was like the Jazz were falling totally apart. I mean, it was one of the greatest demolitions of a team in the world. So they're up 2-1 and I think that that's unfortunately what gave Rodman the. then Rodman goes and I, my friends were saying Rodman's on television I'm like they must have taped it he goes and does the uh, a WWE show <laughs> and you know <laughs> not in Chicago and he I think in Detroit he went to Detroit and did a WWE with New World War with Hulk Hogan and then comes back and then it was a whole mess for that but the Bulls in games four I'm sitting in the upper deck uh, dead center for that game they won 86-82 Jordan had 14 points Rodman had 14 boards uh, and uh, but it was Exciting to be at that game, but now you're up three-one, and it's the coronation. This you're is what gonna it's going it to close it out. It's going to close, and that's the, the day before that. When there's tanks, there, and I said there was <laughs> tanks. I saw a picture. There were tanks, armored personnel carriers, like they were waiting for this. Everybody knew this was the last dance. This was going to be it. And I'm running around that arena. I am trying to find a ticket. I cannot get. I cannot get a ticket. I can't get anything. There was no. You go to the corners where the people had tickets. Nobody had them. You go. You stopped in the and you got
0: brokers. You've got oh, people. Ticket yeah. brokers
1: were like, <laughs> I'm going. Like brokers were literally saying, I have two and I'm taking them. And th- th- no one had them. It was mm-hmm. like, it was unbelievable. Like, it was not a matter of money or pricing or this. There was like no tickets available. You didn't see a ticket on the street. There weren't even fake tickets available. Like, there was nothing. <laughs> there was nothing. And I'm running around. I'm like, I'm going to get shut out. I'm with my friend and we're running around and I see this barbershop. And in that barbershop has all this bulls paraphernalia on the wall. You think that maybe the bulls go there. I mean, it's like, it was like the bulls barbershop. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, let's walk in. and Let's see what happens. I go in. I go, hey, does anyone know any tickets? Just throw it out there. And some guy goes, I have two. And I'm like, well, what do you want? And we're going back on a pricing. And he goes, how about I walk you in? And then this guy, I said, well, don't you have to cut people's hair? And he goes, no, I have no, someone will cover me. So he walks us down. (laughs) We're like a half a mile from the stadium. He walks us in. There's three levels of security. We go through first level, second level, third levels. He knows everybody. We don't present tickets, know nothing. We go right. He takes us down to our seat. We go sit down in our seat. He calls the popcorn lady over and says, hey, give my boy Ira here some popcorn. Get some popcorn. I didn't pay for that. And he's like, are you happy? Are you happy? And I'm like, I'm ecstatic. It doesn't doesn't get any better. We're 10 rows. (laughs) We're 10 rows behind the basket. It was mm-hmm. perfect seats. It was great. It was exciting. And then he just left and that was it. And that was like my amazing story about how I got in there. And I certainly paid a lot for the ticket and everything, but it was just it was just an exciting thing to be there and I was just pumped and the atmosphere in the arena and everyone screaming and yelling and it was just, what it was It was like one of those games and Rodman was a mess. He didn't start the game. He had 24 points, two points, three rebounds. Scotty Pippen, now you saw in the, in the last dance of game six, but people, they didn't say in game five, he shot two for 16, 6 points, 11 rebounds, 11 assists. His back was a disaster. Yeah. And Jordan was Jordan did not have a great shooting game. He was 9 for 26, 28 points. But Kukoc actually played great. I mean, he's not... They've mentioned him a little bit, but in that that last 98 finals... He doesn't he, go down in the lore of no, the Bulls was, players. No, but People he,
0: remember Kerr and Paxton better.
1: It was Tony Kukoc doing a lot of work. He had 30 points. It was it was unbelievable. The Bulls were up 36-30 at the end of the first half, but they by the end of the third, they're trailing. And then it was 80-76 Jazz with 18 seconds left. Kukoc was fouled, shooting a three, and uh, and then uh, with 82-78, he made a three. Like, who coach was the one scoring at the mm-hmm. end of the game. But then, Jeff Hornacek got fouled, and he uh, made one foul shot, missed another, which gave, the Bulls were only down two, with like 1.1 seconds. You saw in the game where Jordan went up, double pumped, and mm-hmm. then it just didn't, and I, yeah. I it was an air ball. I, I, I thought, where I was sitting behind when he shot it, and I'm like, it's going to go in, it's going to be a miracle, it's going to be the greatest thing. But I got to get, Malone was unstoppable. Um, Rodman could not do it. With yeah. them. Malone was just, I was underneath the basket and Rod and Malone was just throwing people off, pushing people around the whole time. And uh, it was just, it was like when they lost, it, it was very similar to game seven when I was in Golden State, when the Cavs won on the Kyrie Irving mm-hmm. uh, shot. And uh, it's like, it was like, oh my God, we lost the game. We cannot believe we lost a game seven to LeBron. And, and that's the air just left the people were just in shock. They didn't even, they didn't boo. They didn't clap. They were just zombies. You're listening to Ira on Sports.
0: This is the True Oldies channel discussing Jordan's last dance and how Ira was there for almost all of this. Joan Ryan, excellent author and uh, columnist, going to join us at about 7.30. So, Ira, you talked about how you were in a situation where you couldn't get a ticket if your life depended on it. You got lucky. But you were also very smart. Because now you got a ticket that everyone wants, that they can't get.
1: I show up, at. so we had already booked a flight to go to Utah. My friends, I had three of my friends at that time, and we had booked these Southwest flights at Midway. We show up at the airport... People were wanting to, to give me like a thousand dollars for my on top of my plane ticket, mm-hmm. which is like a two hundred, like $150, 200 two hundred dollar plane ticket because there's no flights to Utah. Nobody yeah. was flying. Nobody was going. You there had was, the foresight that I, they might not win. I, that, yeah, <laughs> so so we go. We're, we're there. We go. We fly there. It Was exciting to get there. We got to go through St. Louis. We land, and the first thing I do is I, there was back in those days, you didn't know what the seating chart was. Is AA the first row or the second row or whatever? So I had to I had to figure out where my seats were. I'm like, there's a WNBA game. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so we show up at the WNBA game, and I'm walking around. The, I mean, there's like maybe 500 fans there, but I'm walking around, like, is this a good seat? Is this a bad <laughs> seat? What's the, like, is there, a, is there a beam blocking this? And I'm like, literally, my mm-hmm. friends were like, you're nuts. And so I decided to go to a concession stand, get a Coke or something. I'm at the concession stand. There's Ron Harper and Scott Burrell are standing next to me. I start Crazy. talking to them about the game. <laughs> like, could you imagine, like, the game before, and they made finals? There's Ron Harper, who's a starter for the Bulls, Scott yeah. Burrell, you see on TV. And we're just talking. It's like, yeah, we got this trip in. It's weird. Like, they got in, like, when I got in. They're like, we're just, we thought We'd head over here. We're staying at the Marriott. Like they're playing in this game. <laughs> it was just so cool. And uh, then, the, then Sunday afternoon was the greatest because I go down and it, it'll never be replicated the rest of my life because I go there to scout tickets. And again, the Jazz normally play at night on Sunday if they ever play on Sunday because they're Latter Day Saints. They don't believe mm-hmm. and go into sporting events during the day on Sunday for the Sabbath. But because the NBC said it has to be during the day it was the game was at like four o'clock jazz time. So all the jazz fans that have the tickets, especially the good lower bowls tickets had to sell their tickets. I showed up there, but there's no Bulls fans buying tickets, yep. and you're not in Salt Lake. So they you're couldn't not. get there. The, the LA fans aren't <laughs> even there. Like, there's nobody there, and I'm walking around, and I'm like, oh my god. So, like, for three, four hundred dollars a ticket, I'm like picking where I'm going to sit. I sat the first row behind the press, which is like the fifth or sixth row dead center, and then I got two tickets for my friends behind David Hasselhoff dead center, right on the court. <laughs> I mean, I said those tickets for the NBA Finals, the Bulls, I mean, the Warriors Cavs series would have been like seventy five thousand mm-hmm. dollars. I mean, I'm it was like in, I could have literally picked whatever tickets I want, and we went in. And that arena was so loud. The Delta Center at the time was there's only that one row. You saw on TV, there's like that one row of suites, but it's like a big lower bowl. Yeah. It's one of the biggest lower bowls. And the fans, the moment, like they're thinking, look, 3 2. And that's back in those days was 2 3 2. They got two games. They have Jordan on the ropes. They know what they're good. They're all pumped. They're ready to go. And man, it was exciting. It was so loud and so exciting to be in that arena. And I just, I mean, I'll just, I'll never forget just how uh, crazy it was. And then the Sports Illustrated photographer was sitting next to me and he's like, he was taking pictures whole game, and he said, "I'm going to go before the fourth quarter, but I think you might have the better seat where you're sitting." And oh, Leonardo DiCaprio was sitting like t- about four seats to me, and you saw him on the uh, on the last dance last night. They, <laughs> Jordan after the game was talking to Leonardo DiCaprio. He came over and he was mm-hmm. talking about the Man in the Iron Mask and Titanic or whatever. Mm-hmm. So he was there, and my friends, I said, sat behind uh, Hasselhoff and, and on the other side. But it was just it was just so great to be in that uh, arena. And Michael Jordan had the finest performance ever. Ever, because really, Scottie Pippen, you saw on the TV... It, you People, I think, on TV didn't realize how hurt he was when you're in the stands. He couldn't move. He couldn't walk up and mm-hmm. down the court. His back was done. He was just a total decoy. He, he, he wasn't just fake. It was just he couldn't move. It was amazing he was able to get through. Dennis Rodman was completely out of control. The Jazz fans were yelling at him. He's yelling at them back. There was a point where he's yelling at the fans. The, the action's on the other end. You would think this is <laughs> like a pickup game. I'm like, this yeah, is right. the NBA Finals. So look at Jordan on defense. He has Pippen who can't even get down. Rodman is there. And just like Jordan and Kerr and Harper trying to guard five of the mm-hmm. Jazz. So it was just unbelievable how well – what happened. I mean, he ended up with uh, Rodman, seven points, five fouls, only eight boards. Pippen played 23 minutes, had had eight points, uh, and it was uh, three rebounds. And Jordan scored 45 points, 45 other 87 points, four steals. Uh, just, and Kip and, and Kukoc played well, had 15 yeah. points. But that was just – I mean, Malone was just tremendous. And then, and during that game, you saw it from the last stance – The jazz, it was like... It was almost like the Jazz that they could have won that game, they were going to take that game. The, the Bulls dynasty went over. Like, it's going to end. Like, you just felt like it was all falling apart. And that was it, the momentum. Sorry. It was just, it was unbelievable. And then Jordan went out at the eight-minute mark. Jordan goes out of the game. Then he comes back in the game for like one minute and he scores, he scores like four quick points to take the lead. And then Malone near the end of the game, you saw with 46 to go seconds to go, Malone threw to Stockton. So for a three, he took the three. They went up by a three-point lead with 46 seconds to go. And that's when Jordan and on the tape, he has Burrell on, um, he has Brian Russell on him and he just drove fast right through the... I, it was like explosion how he scored those mm-hmm. two points. And then he scores the points. He runs down. I mean, they showed it again on the last dance. This, then it steals it from... They, they remember, the Jazz are up by one. They stole the ball. And he comes and steals it from alone. Doesn't call a timeout. And everyone's going crazy. And I'm like, I gotta get this shot. I got I always think it was, I gotta get this picture for the last <laughs> shot. And it was just perfect. It's my best picture of all time. I had the ball right on the hand. All the Bulls uh, fans on the other side. All the, like the Jerry Krause I can see with his mouth open, like in shock. And it was just great, this picture. I loved it. The ones you see on ESPN and Sports Illustrated were underneath the basket I was actually on the right hand side when he took it and made the shot and the fun thing was after the game uh, I ran over to there was a bus that was his bus was coming they showed it on the last dance the bus came back to the hotel but it was there was about three four hundred Bulls fans there but it wasn't like insane it wasn't like it was in Chicago so he comes there and Jordan lifted the emergency hatch off the bus <laughs> and had his cigar and the trophy and oh, just held it. It's I, iconic. But I couldn't get that picture because it was too dark. <laughs> and then we went to a bar afterwards and uh, so I'm in a bar at, uh, at, at with all like the NBA royalty. There's David Stern, Jimmy Goldstein, Quinn Buckner, uh, you know everyone who broadcast the game and everything. And it was just exciting to be there and I go to the restaurant washing my hands. I've told this story before and I see Ren David Stern and I said, uh, he goes, where are you from? I go Altoona and he goes, Johnny Moore, Mike Isolino, Doug West, the three players that were from so that was my total excitement I, i'm watching it last night i'm going crazy I, I saw myself on tv it's just amazing so there i finally got a chance i've been trying for a couple of weeks to sell tell the story but that's what happens.
0: So. if you're listening to iron sports on the true oldies channel we've got joan ryan coming up in just a little bit it's a great interview ira one of the first things that you've brought about on this show we've only got like two minutes left here is the argument of lebron Versus Jordan. And I think the all of the younger generation, if you were a millennial, you think LeBron is the best player ever. If you're not a millennial, I think they feel the way you do, Ira.
1: The sports, the ESPN poll, though, took my position on that. So I was just so. I think com- after
0: this documentary helped. I think maybe three months ago it would have been LeBron.
1: Though. Yeah, I mean it was like really cool. And I loved the one aspect before we get to Jones interview. The one thing that I thought was so cool was that. At the end, 10 minutes to go, he finally put the knife into Jerry Reinsdorf. Mm-hmm. Jordan was like, I wanted to come back for my seventh. I wanted, it. we could have done this. And Reinsdorf because they kept blaming Jerry Krauss, the general manager, forever. And you're looking, what Jerry Krauss? Like he's just a GM. Like what, what GM is gonna control when the owner has the control of the team? And Mike Woolbaum has come on and said, Well, Reinsdorf only owned 13%. When everybody knows he owned 80%, he had total control of the team. This whole thing was a joke. But he finally put the knife into Reinsdorf at the end. I loved it. And I find it just it was so great because Reinsdorf, as the he could have brought the team back but the only thing I'm telling you the stats on LeBron we're down here in Miami 2011 when uh when they were when they when they lose to Dallas Dirk Nowitzki uh Sean Marion Tyson Chandler uh Jason Terry I mean they lost to a terrible Dallas team he's he's in his prime he's 26 years old like this is unbelievable then three years later to go this is the series that no one talks about LeBron they lost to the Spurs four games to one um, with a with the Spurs team that's old was was not really mm-hmm. the, the, the Duncan and Ginobili and Parker were old and, uh, and Clyde Leonard was, was just in his infancy they lost the last three games 19 by points 21 points 17 points can you imagine when you watch the last dance that Michael Jordan would lose a <laughs> <the> game <laughs> no. by 20 and so that, there's no comparison and people the say sum of all the games and it's, it's not 20. like LeBron goes oh look at my team you had Chris Bosch you had Dwayne Wade I know Wade was hurt that one but we're here in Miami we saw that I'm telling you what he should have had four titles You're, that, to not to come away to come down to Miami Miami and win those two titles. That team should have won four. And look, LeBron's great. Maybe the second greatest player of all time. But for him to say he's better than Jordan when he when in Miami he could not win those titles. I, that's where I think he lost it. On there, he's nothing he can do now. He's, he still has a chance with the Lakers. We'll see what happens. But I think that's where he lost it. If he would have won four titles in a row, then we're having a better. Then he's really in the discussion. But I think losing the Dallas series and losing the Spurs series that hurt. Him. I was going to say the Spurs is
0: one thing, and it, granted, it was the end of that you know triumvirate that they had in San Antonio. I mean, but that Dallas you had no business letting uh, Dirk Nowitzki basically beat you by himself. No, no. It, 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 was, it was sad to me wanting to see the championship come here to South Florida and just just didn't get it. We got maybe a minute left. Ira. Anything else you want to touch on with Jordan?
1: Yeah. Uh, the fact that when Jerry Krause, I said, oh, we had to break the team up. All they had to do was pay Jordan. They could have paid Pippen. Like there was nothing to say. Like they made Pippen it, didn't like, make any money that whole time. He didn't make any money the whole time. It's not <laughs> like it was whatever. Jordan would have came back for a year. Jordan was making so much money with 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 his. Phil Nike. said he was going to come back, right? He, they're saying Phil wouldn't, but if Jordan wanted him to come back, he would have. Like I, I don't know why they had to end it. Like they got they should have got rid of Jerry Krause. Jerry Krause was GM for four more years, and then he became a scout for the Yankees. Like what made Jerry Krause? <laughs> so you they the cho- natural bridge. <laughs> they chose Jerry Krause over a, over going for a seventh title with Jordan Pippen. In Jackson, like I would have jettisoned Jerry Krause in a second. I mean, look at and look what Jerry Krause. I he mean, says, "Oh well, he's he put this together after Jordan left. He was 13 and 37, last place in the East. Next year, 17 and 65, last place in the East. 15 and 67, last place in the East. And then 21 and 61, last place in the East. So f- one, two, three, four years, the worst record in the East. What is what kind of genius is Jerry Krause? And they put him in the stupid Hall of Fame, and I don't think he deserves to be in it at all. And he's the one who broke this whole thing up. It's just insane. And he couldn't even let." the team, he wasn't even supportive of the team when it was Mm -hmm. there. I just... I, I think what they did, I I, I, w- I came away like sad that I couldn't see a seventh going for that seventh title in a year that that was the year the Knicks it was a straight tournament season. Yeah, Ewing got hurt. You had Allen Houston and Latrell Sprewell were the Knicks' best players, and they had won like and Larry tw- Johnson and Larry Johnson <laughs> on the four point play. Yeah, and they had the won twenty seven, and they had a twenty seven and twenty three record. So you do not think the Bulls would have got through the East and then would have played the Spurs in the finals? The, the, the young Spurs are back in those days, yeah. so. Um, but that's what I felt bad
0: about. We got to keep moving here, Iris. So. I don't think
1: this has ever happened before, but I'm glad that it did. UFC on a Wednesday night? Well, you got UFC, you got Glover, Glover, Texera, and Anthony Smith. And what was amazing about this is that Smith was a favorite, a so light heavyweight. Teixeira dominated Smith most of the uh, most of the fight. And it was like rounds three and four were ten, eight rounds, and the criticism was they should have stopped it. But Teixeira, just when he's forty year olds from, from Brazil. And he went to he was a landscaper. He went to Connecticut was a landscaper. But he just didn't like it was like weird. It's like people were waiting for him. Like he didn't want to beat Smith up. The ref the, the ref wasn't stopping the fight and the and Smith's corner wasn't stopping. And so it wasn't a good show for the UFC because mm-hmm. it really wasn't that great a fight. But then Saturday night, another forty-year-old Alistair Overeem, forty-year-old, beat Walt Harris. Uh, and Harris was the favorite. They're two heavyweights, and they were both like ranked eighth and ninth. And uh, there was a lot of motion for Harris because his stepdaughter was uh, kidnapped and killed. And uh, and Harris dominated the first part of the fight. But boy, Overeem, you thought it's going to be over. Overeem turned it, got Harris on the on the ground, and then by the second round, he had won the fight. So it was a, it was an upset there. So you got you got two upsets on Wednesday and Saturday. Night, but it, they were they were good performances in Jacksonville, and now the UC takes a couple of weeks off, and then they're probably going to be in Arizona or Las Vegas.
0: So, Ira, you know, I, I bring it up on the show every chance I can. I love golf, and I was so excited for yesterday's matchup: Matt Wolf and Ricky Fowler versus Dustin Johnson and Rory mcelroy right in our backyard, literally, you know, ten miles from the state from the station or less at Seminole. I was so excited for this, and Ira, for me. The avid golf fan, it lived up to it. It wasn't the best golf I'd ever seen, but it was so cool seeing the humanized aspect of it. These guys all sitting around watching each other putt like I would with my friends on a Sunday afternoon. It was something that I think the the average golf fan
1: has been wanting to see so bad, and we got it, and I really, really loved it. Yeah, I mean, I think it was uh, Fowler and and Wolf both went to Oklahoma State, and Fowler's this young player who people don't see a lot. And Boy, what a crazy backswing he has! I wolf, mean, he's, me, yeah. Wolf, wolf, yeah, Wolf, yeah. yeah just <laughs> I great, don't know how he does that. It's amazing backswing, and but Justin Johnson was rusty. I mean, it, it's it felt like Wolf was struggling the whole day. It mm-hmm. felt like Justin Johnson wasn't was not at it his at all, and it really felt it was almost like a Fowler versus McElroy because that's where they were winning the skins. And I, I love the skin aspect of it, and I it, because they were if you if it's, if, it's, if you have a hole. then you can't another hole when you go back and what got exciting was at the end they had they were up to six skins the hole was 1.1 million and the only bad thing was they weren't making certain shots and then they had to go to the ninth uh, they had to play the 17 which is a par three they had to play that hole again it was the closest to the hole wins mm-hmm. dustin johnson was out of nowhere he was nowhere close yeah fowler hit a bad shot wolf was the one who i mean it's so funny wolf went up there i don't know if you heard fowler goes you better hit this close and, yeah, and he, he did and but wolf joked and like you're joking you no know, fowler goes no no you better hit a good shot that was the, yeah. the highlight <laughs> I, of the entire yes. afternoon no it's like no we're done joking and so Wolf hit it and it looked like great 15 shot 15 feet and then McElroy hits it and I'm like they're like they couldn't sure who was closer and then they just said McElroy's the winner and I'm like well can someone measure there was no one even near the green mm. to measure like I don't know why they just awarded McElroy just because they wanted to I guess they wanted to give him the winner but uh, yeah,
0: I yeah I don't know if that if that was what it was yeah that they just wanted them to win I did think that was weird but you're right the Ricky Fowler quote when you could tell it switched from friends to game time right here oh no you You need to put this close. I thought that was cool. I think one of the things that I'm a little disappointed is how America is reacting to the course. This is, if people don't know, Seminole is easily the top five most prestigious courses in the country. It's up there with Augusta, just below it. It doesn't look that nice on TV. It doesn't have all the the bells and whistles of some of these other courses. So I keep seeing people from Oklahoma and Colorado commenting on social media, this is the nicest course in the country. This doesn't look that nice. I don't know if it's the prestige or how it is, but I think that might have been a little underwhelming for me.
1: Well, I think it was interesting to see the water in the ocean, and it was neat because they kept having. I just I biked that morning, so I biked past it, right past and it. I'm like, oh, I biked right past it. The entrance is right there, so I'm like, and you're to see where Singer Island is. Mm-hmm. So I think it was cool for me. I'm like looking at like, oh, I never saw yeah, this my house angle there. No, 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 no. <laughs> I was looking for that, so I thought that was really cool. How to be able to watch that? Uh, McElroy had 11, and DJ had 11 skins, and Fowler had seven, and all the money went to charity. They raised like five million, but it was still they would have played for a dollar. Like it was in mm-hmm. place. Like if they had a dollar. Out there to see who was going to win there, but I thought it was neat. They were carried their own bags. They wore shorts, Mm -hmm. and they were allowed to use finders. There's no caddies, so they had. It was so weird seeing a range finder. (laughs) I was was like, I was was like texting my friends like Fowler's cheating. He's a range finder. Call him (laughs) in for violation. You wonder if that would be. But also, you notice their bags. They weren't those heavy bags. Like when the caddies carry the bags, it's like they're carrying these like big suitcases. Mm -hmm. The bags they were carrying were like if you're like an eight year old. They're called stand
0: bags. (laughs) There's stands, and then there's golf or there's cart bags, and then. Has caddy bags all leather, super heavy. <laughs> but yeah, that was, there was another thing to me was they're not they're not getting a putt read, you know. And, and so a lot, some of these golfers, Brooks Kepka came out and said, "My caddy's here to help me read putts," and the, some of them are just not great at it. I saw that on display yesterday as he's trying to figure this out on their own.
1: Right, right. It, it was uh, it was. I mean. I said Justin Johnson, which is they. He was just so off, I mean, there were so many holes. I felt like Rory was just carrying. Like it's like they would, they like Justin's his first tee shots, like in the in the water somewhere. So Rory's like playing the hole. He's like one versus two the whole time, but it was still good, great. I loved it. Next week, I mean, I, I'm excited for yeah. After time. watching, this was like sort of like the prelim for Tiger and uh, Tiger Payton versus uh, Brady and Manning. So, or, or not Brady. Sorry, <laughs> Tiger and Payton and uh, wait, Phil Mickelson and Tom Brady versus Tiger Woods and Peyton Manning. So. I'm
0: very excited for that one. It's going to be uh, super fun. And the Medalist should look on TV like you imagine one of the most exclusive courses in the country looking. It's built up to the T's, so this will be uh, a lot of fun for us next weekend. NASCAR's back in action, Ira,
1: and you were watching this cuz you're a big NASCAR guy. Well, I don't know if I'm a big NASCAR guy, but I was like it was on, so I had the golf on one and then I had the NASCAR on the other, and I've used I said love watching NASCAR before, and it was pretty cool. I mean, they, this is old days in the 70s. Richard Petty used to they used to run races all the time. and They run like four races, 11 days. People criticize because Eddie has won 200 wins. And they're like, no one's ever going 200 <laughs> again. They're crazy. But now they're seeing how hard it is to do when you have to race this much time. And uh, I was waiting for this huge accident in the first ra- lap and only one, like Ricky Stenhouse got got hurt. He uh, got in an accident, not hurt. He was in an accident. And then uh, but then they, they run on stages over so like the first 90 laps is like a race. And Jimmy Johnson, who I already know, seven time cup champion, he was leading at that point. But then right before the stage was over, he had an, an accident. So he's out of the race. And Kevin Harvick, he dominated. He had led, it was for his 50th career win. He's one of the most famous NASCAR drivers. He led 159 to 293 laps. And uh, so it was a good win for for Kevin Harvick. You're listening to Ira on Sports on the True
0: Oldies channel. Just about two minutes until we speak with uh, Joan Ryan here on Ira on Sports. Ira, my phone was uh, very, very exacerbated on Saturday morning as the texts keep rolling in about how the Giants – Traded up for a player named DeAndre Baker out of Miami last year. Um, He had a miserable, awful rookie year. And now he might not ever play in the NFL again.
1: Right. I mean, the story about DeAndre Baker and, and Seahawks, Quinton Dunbar, Dunbar, two cornerbacks. So, I mean, they yeah. were both there and there was like, it was a mess. They, were, they lost money in a gambling game in Miramar. They were mad they lost. It came back a couple of days later. I mean, you're joking. if like Tiger and Phil, there's betting and they lose. They come back and they start pissing <laughs> out with each other. But it's like they were, it's a mess. They were both arrested. And then, so you had Baker who was, the Giants were really counting on him. I mean, this is a, this is a terrible loss for him. Yeah, they They're give up four picks to right. move up to. And then another ex-giant who they're happy, like, if if it's more giants, then, like, the next day, Cody Lattimore for the Redskins was found in Colorado firing his gun in his apartment. So now he's going to have a suspension or something. And then Ed Oliver of the Bills was arrested in Houston driving uh, with an open beer between his legs, (laughs) erratically with a dune buggy behind his back through a construction zone, which is probably not a good whatever. And you're like, if you're Roger Goodell, you got to, like, we got to get these guys in camp. We have four players now (laughs) that are suspended. We can have, like, a suspended team. Like, this is not a good thing for the NFL. Yeah, they would
0: beat the Jaguars. But, the and I, but
1: we bring this up because like the Bundesliga, this is what the thing is that they're saying we're going to be in quarantine and whatever. The Bundesliga had like one of the uh, managers or well, the coaches for the team went down to get a toothbrush. He went – he thought the, the the convenience store was in the hotel but it was sort of outside. And they said, oh, you just walked out of the hotel. You broke quarantine. Now two weeks, you can't – you have to be quarantined mm-hmm. for two weeks. I can't imagine how these these NFL players, how are they're they going to – There's <laughs> no way they're going to be – they can't even stay without guns. And I'm, I'm going to say that small minority. Most of the NFL players are phenomenal, mm-hmm. amazing people, do great things. But if you have these people who pull these, this done, uh, how are they going to not break quarantine for like three, four months? It seems like impossible. So they're going to have to come up with a different way to do it.
0: Ira, the most bizarre thing about all of this, this was Wednesday night. Thursday morning, Quentin Dunbar had a video press conference with the Seattle Seahawks <laughs> saying how happy he is to be there. Now he's about to change his career. Uh-huh. He committed armed robbery 12 hours earlier. That's just... You can't make this stuff up, Iron. And, of course, my New York Giants are at the bottom of it. Um, before we get to, to Joan here, um, Major League Baseball, they seem like they're doing everything they can. But Blake Snell, he's never quiet about how he, how he, how, what his opinions are. And he had one uh, this week.
1: I, I think the lesson, I mean, more people playing video games. You saw Kyle Larson for the NASCAR. I, when you're playing video games, like, just be quiet. Don't talk. Like, just play <laughs> the games. Like, he's in the middle of a video game and he's giving a press conference. I don't think that's the best thing. And he talked about how, look, I've got paid $7 million, but if I have to give up some of my money, it's not too much, too much money, and I'm giving up all this money, and I don't want to give up money because if you're either going to play, because it's so dangerous to play, sort of summarizing what he said in many words. But the point, what he's raising is this, is that he was okay. And this is what the players are saying. Look, if we're only going to play. 80 games, pay me half my salary. Yeah. He's okay with that. But what the owners have come back saying, no, 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 we're going to do a revenue sharing now because we're going to have less revenues and that's what we want to do. And they're like, well, that's not what was agreed to like yeah, two months ago and yeah. they have a contract <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sort of, I side with the players, like for the owners on this, like, like, you know what, if they're if the players are agreeing half and half, they've come up with that agreement, I think they're going to have to live with that if they're going to play. And yeah, it's a bad loss for everything, but the players themselves, they agreed to play the certain amount of games, whether you have fans or not have fans. So I, as much as what Snell said, how he said it was about as horrendously said as you possibly could say. Yes. But the other fact is I do think that I think that's going to be the problem. I think these owners should not be trying to get this 50-50 and, and they're winning the on the court of public opinion. A lot of talk show hosts are going and saying, oh, the players have to give in and stuff. But look, I think it's fair to say, look, if you don't play games, you play games. That's what your contract is. Uh, play 80 81 games, you get half your salary. I think that's fair to say.
0: You're listening to Iron Sports. Let's get to Joan
1: Ryan, author of Intangibles, unlocking the science and soul of team chemistry. We have Joan Ryan. She is a famous author. She actually wrote a book called The Little Girls in Pretty Boxes, which was named one of the top 100 sports books of all time. She was a longtime writer for the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, thanks, Joan, for coming on Iron Sports.
2: Thanks, Ira. I'm happy to be here. And, you know, I have family in your uh, your radio land down there, so I'm thrilled that they will be able to hear me all the way from San Francisco.
1: That's great. We're also available on SoundCloud and iTunes, so people can listen to the show across the country. But, yes, over at Terrestrial Radio, <laughs> they can hear uh, yeah. tonight. Um, you just wrote a book called Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Team Chemistry. And I... I took a lot of organizational behavior classes when I was in college. So I was excited about this and I've been around teams and it was great. And I guess, can I ask you the conclusion? First of all, is there, is there team chemistry?
2: Yes. Yes. And, and that, you know, as you know, you know, three questions drove this book and it drove me for 10 years, (laughs) getting this book done and doing all the research and the three questions in this, time of analytics and baseball, especially, but in sports throughout, is does team chemistry exist? And if it exists, what is it? And then finally, how does it elevate performance? Because why even talk about it, right, if it doesn't elevate performance? And so the book sets out to answer those three questions. And along the way, as you know, you know we visit, go into a lot of clubhouses and locker rooms and watch what team chemistry looks like, and then try to understand the science, you know, and, and you know, biological science, evolutionary biology, all of that beneath it, and, and really try to get at this phenomenon that we talk about all the time, but is, is really poorly understood.
1: So I, I'm going to tell you a quick story. I'm interviewing you, but I just want to tell this quick story about Ben Rotzenberger, the quarterback at the Steelers. So uh, he went sure. to he came to out the, to a Blair County Sports Hall of Fame dinner. They paid him as a speaker, and at the dinner they put people in the Hall of Fame. There's 1,500 people who go to this, and there's a high school football team. They usually put up one high school football team there. He went to the event and he talked to before uh, the event to the high school football team. that was a they won the state title, considered one of the best teams and everything. And I heard so many great things about Ben because people had been criticizing him. They said, "Man, he was great." He spent an hour with the team. He couldn't believe it. Well, a couple of years later, I saw Ben on a golf course and I went up to him. I said, remember when you spoke at that dinner? And I go, people thought it was so great that you went and talked to this team, this high school team, and just spent time with them. And he, and he looked right. He stopped, looked right at me. And he goes, benefit to me. What about benefit to them? What about benefit to me? He goes, I looked in their eyes and that was 12 years after they had won that title. And if you told me that these guys had, you didn't tell me what they won, I would have said they had won a state title. There was, I never saw a <laughs> band of people together. And he goes, I wish my team had that type of chemistry. And he used the words, he goes, I wish the Steelers Uh-oh. had that chemistry. And so I kept thinking when I was reading your book about when Ben, I thought he was going to beat me up when he was yelling at me about that. <laughs> but the point is that that was that, that passion that came out is like that. That's the, what we were, what I tried to get out of my team. And they had it, and they had it for 12 years later. So I thought that was interesting. And and then in your book, you go and you actually talked about people like Michael Lewis, who wrote Moneyball. And you went up to people and said, is there such thing as, as chemistry? And they were like, no, no, no. So there is that, that segment of people that said there, there is no chemistry at all.
2: I know. And it is endlessly puzzling to me. And here's why. Michael Lewis. And the reason why I met Michael Lewis is that, you know, I was hired basically to interview him on stage during this, you know, four night speaker series, you know, and so I could see firsthand. I mean, this is a very bright human being and I love his books um, and all the rest of it. And for somebody like him, when I asked him, um, uh, oh, I was telling him that we had a mutual friend, this neuroscientist that I was interviewing and spending a lot of time with for this book. And he said, well, how do you know him? You know, and I told him, and, and, he, and he said, what's your book about? And I said, team chemistry. And he basically just said, it doesn't exist. Period. <laughs> like, there was no, like, intellectual curiosity or, like, like seriously, you're spending a whole, you know, a, a whole book on this thing that doesn't exist? Well, tell me why you think it exists. Like, there was nothing. It was just, like, end of conversation. And as you said, there are people like that that are super, super smart and curious. And to not even entertain the possibility that even if you can't quantify team chemistry, which we can't, at least with the tools we have today, there is a scientific foundation to it. And, and also just common sense, right? I mean, we experience it all the time in our own lives, in our relationships, in our families, at our offices, right? So the evidence is right in front of us. Now we just have to understand, like, well, what's the effect of it and, you know, how do we connect with each other? What builds trust? All of those things. But it obviously exists.
1: Right. And then I loved how you talked about in this time of social distancing where you're not touching and you're not talking, you're staying away from close. But you talked about how the humans have developed in terms of the fact is that they were able. Uh, the story was the against the mammoths. Like if they had one uh, person, like a caveman, against a <laughs> mammoth, they wouldn't get squashed. But they learned how to communicate together and work well together and do those things to be able to defeat the mammoths, or the mammoths would win. And they said the brain is full of of, of just not just intelligence, but about these these oxy. You mentioned a term, oxy. Oxytocin, oxytocin,
2: and and neurotransmitters, mirror neurons. Where. You know, basically it, when you're in conversation with another human being, your mirror neurons are firing and, and what those mirror neurons do is we end up, we understand what the other person is feeling and thinking and, and maybe, you know, reading their intention by basically mimicking what they're doing. That's how it, when we change our facial mu- muscles, in response to seeing their facial muscles, it allows then our our face, basically, is sending signals to our brain to say, that person's angry, that person's sad, you know, um, that person's not to be trusted. We get all of these signals. And you're right, you know, over three million years of, of human evolution, our brains kept getting quadrupled in size, kept getting bigger and bigger. And, and as you said, it, it wasn't to house The intellectual wiring, it was to keep adding and adding and adding to the social wiring because that is what keeps us alive is this sense of tribe and connecting with each other. And, of course, you know, that's at the core of team chemistry, whether it's in a business or in, in sports.
1: I loved your story about Jason Lezak in the 2000, it was 2008 Olympics where he was in the right. final leg of the Olympics and that was the Michael Phelps relay. So and he right. Phelps Phelps did not anchor the relay. Lisek anchored the relay and he was going against Alain Ballard, Bernard who was the the one of besides Phelps the other the top uh, swimmer in the world. And he's, he goes and enters, and the, and the Americans had done a terrible job. They had given instead of giving him this big lead that they were supposed to do, where he's going to cruise, he is this, he's now behind a length, and he actually swam the greatest swim he's ever done in his entire life, <laughs> faster than the time he swims by himself, because it was that, you point, point to, it was a team event. It wasn't, he wasn't swimming for himself, he's swimming for Phelps, he's swimming for Lochte, he's swimming for everybody else on the, on the team, not just himself. Exactly, and, and I
2: love that story, and... You know, there was a group of scientists who, after that, looked at looked at all, all of the swimmers, um, compared, all the swimmers that competed both in relay and individually, and compared, and almost every one of them swam the same distance faster in the relay, even accounting for you know the the rolling, you know, dive in and, and all of that. But it's exactly what Jake Peavy, Cy Young pitcher, who in, you know, the 150 or so interviews I did, here's Jake Peavy, comes out with the one sentence that crystallized for me exactly what, the exact description of team chemistry. And what he said, because I said, I said, Jake, you're that guy who's out on the mound and you're given a hundred. Percent every single moment out there. And I don't know if you've ever, you know, watched him pitch, but he's the snorter and the, you know, yelling at us, screaming at himself, and just like he's he's just intense out there. And I said, why would Team Chemistry help you elevate your performance? I mean, you're already giving 100%. You know, it's impossible to give more than 100%. And he said, my teammates bring out a fight in me I can't willingly summon for myself. And that's what it is. And it goes back to exactly what you were saying about, you know, human evolution and, and who we are as a species, is that we need other people to stir our emotions and and boost our motivation. We're open loop creatures. So your teammates, just as, as uh Lizak You know, his teammates, just knowing they were counting on him, could summon from him something he couldn't willingly summon for himself when when he was swimming in his individual races.
1: We're talking to, uh, to Joan Ryan, the author of Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul of Teen Chemistry. What's exciting about what we're talking about is we'll say, well, this seems like esoteric, whatever. If you listen to Sports Talk Radio Show, people calling in, they're all calling. He's a cancer. Oh, he's great. He's a team guy. We need him. He's a good locker room guy. That's all you hear about. You hear more about good locker room guys, bad locker room guys. Then you hear like, oh, he gets home runs or he does whatever. It's like, what kind of – what is this? Is it good or bad? And you talked about, I thought, your story about Audrey Huff with the 2010 Giants. The fact that Audrey Huff was, was viewed as someone who was, like, not that great of a teammate. And he was a loner and didn't care. And he, and he joined the Giants, and he somehow found his place on the team. And he went from being someone who wasn't a good teammate to actually being one of the catalysts for them to win the World Series.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was the weirdest thing, which is why I devoted a chapter to it, because I wanted to figure this out. I mean, he was never a good teammate. He was one of those, by his own admission, you know, showed up at the ballpark as late as he possibly could and was out the door while the other guys are, are still, you know, changing. Um, but he got into that 2010 Giants clubhouse, and I was, I'm still, I am the media consultant for the Giants, you know, just helping the players do, you know, good interviews and that, that sort of thing. And there was something about the culture of that team. You know, Barry Bonds had left two years earlier. A lot of young, young, really talented guys. And Aubrey Huff comes in as a veteran. And, you know, without meaning to do any of this, because he didn't know how to be a leader, those young players started looking up to him. And it's interesting what happens, right, is if you start being trusted, like genuinely trusted, you become more trustworthy. And they brought out this side of him. I mean, it was still coarse and crude and, and all the rest <laughs> of it. I mean, I was never a fan. But but in that clubhouse, in that year with those exact guys, he was actually a leader. He never was again. Never was before, never was again. But that culture, and, and a lot of this goes to Bruce Bochy and his leadership, but that culture was fostered in such a way where it becomes almost a gravitational force where players bend toward each other and toward their shared purpose, and you could just see it happening in that clubhouse, and you can certainly see it, you know, when you look back on it and you examine it, and it's like, wow, that's what was going on, and, and you know, it, it was a phenomenon to watch, and I know it happens you know, over and over and over again and on, on teams at every
1: level. And then you talked about your super teammate, the guy, the people in the people who followed sports knew that Johnny Gomes was a great teammate, but you really elevated him to be like the MVP of all time in this book and spend some time <laughs> about Johnny Gomes, about how it's like every team, you know, some people said it's just lucky every team he goes on, they win the World Series, but it, it, there wasn't maybe luck. It actually was, he was, he was a contributor because to these World Series wins and his success of every team he was on was successful.
2: Yeah, almost every team, and, and, like, really successful. So I call him my super carrier of chemistry. And, you know, so I did a huge deep dive, and the best story that, you know, sort of illustrates this is the 2013 Boston Red Sox, right? You know, there he's on that team, and um, and it was Big Poppy and Dustin Pedroia and all these guys. Well, they find themselves in the World Series down two games to one against the Cardinals. And John Farrell was the manager at the time. And he posted, and, and Johnny Gomes was always in a platoon in, in, in left field, depending on the, the pitching matchup. And, you know, going into game four, it wasn't an advantageous pitching matchup for Johnny Gomes. So he wasn't in the lineup. Daniel Nava was out in left field. So the lineup is posted. As we know, it goes out on social media. Everybody sees it a few hours before the game. And Big Poppy and and the rest of the, uh, the leadership group on that team convene in the clubhouse and then together go marching into John Farrell's office and ask him to change the lineup and put Johnny Gomes in. Now, not only was it a poor matchup, pitching matchup, but Gomes hadn't gotten a hit in the series. And I think maybe he had one or two hits in the entire postseason. So Farrell, of course, looking at them like they're out of their minds and like the lineup's already posted. (laughs) I'm not going to change the lineup because you guys don't like it. Well, it was basically a mutiny in there, and Farrell changes the lineup. And, you know, don't you know that an hour before, maybe even less, before first pitch, There's a a press release saying that um, Shane Victorino in right field suddenly has lower back tightness, and he's coming out, Nava's moving to right, and Johnny Gomes is going to be playing left field. And, you know, by coincidence, Johnny Gomes ends up hitting a three-run homer that puts them ahead for good, and they end up winning the World Series. But, you know, the the takeaway is that those players believed (laughs) – so completely that as a team they played better with gomes on the field. And so he's like a walking placebo, you know? I mean, we we have pain and a doctor can give us a placebo, even if it's a sugar pill. If we believe it is going to relieve our pain, it often does. And it does because our brain is triggering the pain relief, you know, neurotransmitters in our brain that is sending, you know, that pain relief to our bodies. And that's what Johnny Gomes, you know, they just believed they played better and they did. It's like, you know, anybody who'd watch, (laughs) watch Dumbo, you know, Dumbo didn't think he could fly even though he could fly. And he finally got the quote magic feather and he believed it so much that he could fly. And of course it wasn't the feather, you know, it was, it was then. So Johnny was bringing out something in that team, that they felt they couldn't willingly sum it for
1: themselves. And then you spend uh, so much of the book talking about, and this book is a must read. I mean, for anybody, if you don't even hate sports, if you just despise, if you would be listening to my show if you hate sports, but if you knew someone that hates sports, have them read this book because it's just, you, you don't have to like sports to understand organizational behavior. But you spend the book about talking about team chemistry and those things. And then I'm in the back of mind, I'm thinking, wait a second. She covers the Giants. She talks about the Giants what about Barry Bonds? What about Jeff Kent? Like this is the exact opposite. And then you like address it head on. You're like ready to go. And the most, two of the most moodiest, meanest, nastiest, whatever people in the world. And they're on this team that you're covering. You're talking about how great this is. And this feeling like you have to, this isn't just the elephant in the room. This is like the entire circus in the room in terms of, I mean, they had to be the example of what is a team cancer. It would be Kent and Bonds, the two of the most moodiest. And then you, I loved how you spent time talking about how moodiest, they were and everything. They didn't talk to the you just. They didn't talk to the players. They didn't encourage the players. They didn't talk to the players. They wanted their own rules. Everything applied to them. All this and that. And then your conclusion was they're not a cancer. And just talk a little about about Bonds and I mean, Kent and, and and also your interview. You had a four was it a four hour interview with Barry Bonds, which is amazing in itself.
2: Yeah, yeah. And then followed up with that, and then with uh, with Jeff Kent too. It was fascinating. I mean. Of all the chapters in the book, I, I must say that's my favorite, only because I was so surprised by what I found. Because I went into this book saying, okay, Johnny Gomes is my super carrier example, and Barry Bonds was going to be my super disruptor example. You know, so I went because I did cover him as a sports writer back in the day. And, you know, I was in those clubhouses and I saw how he, he acted. So only to find out. You know, when you talked, I interviewed a bunch of his teammates before I was able to get to him. And I spent a a year, a year building trust, you know, having a, you know, a conversation here and there at the ballpark. Because he became like, um, you know, an ambassador and advisor, you know, one of those roles for the front front office. And so he'd be out at the ballpark pretty regularly. Um, And then finally, you know, we got to sit down. But his teammates said, you know, like bonds... just was so different from everyone else contributed obviously you know more than anyone else as far as you know winning and scoring runs and and that sort of thing that he was just you know on his own little island of misfit toys and and the rest of the team created their own chemistry and and they put up with bonds for the same reason apple put up with Steve Jobs other than the fact that he started the company but <laughs> Like the people he worked with, that you put up with guys like Steve Jobs and Barry Bonds because they literally are geniuses at what they do. They're savants at what they do. And geniuses and savants are often usually very difficult characters because they know so much more about their very narrow genius. You know, Barry Bonds are a genius in, in anything but hitting. I mean, but man. He can see things no one else can see. And it's hard for him to understand why other people can't, can't see this and ask him what he calls stupid questions. You know what I mean? They would just ask me these stupid questions. And I'm like, well, yeah, they're stupid to you because you already know it. But the rest of us don't know it. You know, so we're asking you. So they sort of, he got the genius exemption. <laughs> and, and, and his teammates saw that. And then, you know, when Jeff Kett comes on, oh, my God, of course they couldn't stand each other. And then, you know, teammates couldn't pick which one was worse, you know. (laughs) But they were great teammates in this way. They were 100% prepared every single game. They gave everything they had on the field. And no two guys cared more about winning than those two. And it's why they were able to play so well on the field. So they didn't have chemistry, obviously, but they had what I call task chemistry. They had amazing task chemistry. And when I interviewed each of them, each one said, there's nobody I'd rather have on the field with me than that guy. So they totally respected each other, totally trusted each other on the field, and had none in the clubhouse or anywhere else. And when we look at those seventies um, Yankees teams, A's teams that, you know, would have fistfights in the clubhouse and all that, they had no social, emotional chemistry in the clubhouse. They had incredible task chemistry on the field. So those, you know, cause that's the question I always get, well, how did those guys win? They had no chemistry. And I, you know, discovered, no, they do have chemistry. It's just a different kind of chemistry, but it was as strong as any chemistry you're going to find
1: like you talked about how bonds didn't want he said i'm i'm ready to play in a game i don't want to play cards like i don't want to be viewed as how well i'm going to sit and play for an hour of cards i need to get my sleep i need to have my massage chair i need to have my physical therapist stretch me out i need to have all the special things i go i'm the one who hits all the home runs i need all the the benefits of everything i mean didn't they want me to hit it so his attitude was that and then so he didn't and then you talk about you interviewed other people that say oh it's great we bond we go on right water rafting trips and we do these things whereas bonds didn't care about his players didn't care about anything he just cared -hmm. about the game. Game, but you're right it was the task and, it, and also you spend time on the trust the word trust and and you mentioned it with Kent and Oral Hersizer because Kent does you know he doesn't talk to anyone but he said that one time when he saw that Oral Hersizer after Kent got hit by a pitch mm-hmm. that Oral, Oral took you know hit another batter for him and then at that point he felt like he was going to play for Oral you know as much as Kent was saying there was no chemistry there's no chemistry as, he's, as, but, you're, as you're interviewing him he's saying there's chemistry <laughs> exactly you know he felt that he just
2: didn't want to use that word and and frankly, I kept thinking, God, there's got to be a better word for this than, than uh, teen chemistry. But it really was, you know, that, that was what it was, Is you know, that's what we know it by. So let's just, let's just go with it. And I also asked Kent, I don't know if you remember this in the interview, I asked Kent, I said, hey, you know, do you love your wife? Oh, yeah, of course, I love my wife, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, how much do you love your wife? Because he kept saying, well, you can't quantify it, you know, so how do we know it exists? I said, well, how much do you love your wife? Well, I'd take a bullet for her. And I said, well, that sounds like a lot, <laughs> you know, but there's there's not a number. We're like, what number would you put? Well, you can't put a number on it. I said, well, you know, is that love real? Oh, yeah, of course it's real. And I said, okay. So then why would you say that the, that the feelings and relationships in among teammates is it real unless you can quantify it. And then I asked him, I said, do you think your wife has made you a better man? Said, oh, man, exactly. Okay. So wouldn't it be, it makes sense that any two human beings can, can make each other better? Talking- well, okay. And he said, well, that gives me something to think about. <laughs> so he really did think about it. I appreciated that.
1: I'm talking to Joan Ryan, author of uh, Intangibles Unlocking the Science and Soul of Teen Chemistry. This is Ira on Sports. oldies, 959 106.9. Um, you spent so much time in the book talking about the different players, sages, and kids and forces. We don't have time to go over, it. but I loved how you talked about the the cancer, the clubhouse lawyer. I love that term because I'm a lawyer myself. So they've heard, it's like it's like, and I guess that's the point is when in, in, in when you're trying to bring this, it's not just a person who wants to be moody and whatever. It's someone who wants to cause trouble. And like you said, the clubhouse lawyer doesn't isn't usually the best player, but it's just someone who is always stirring up, arguing, complaining, those type of things. And that's what that's really what destroys. And you said it's like. The bad apple—that one bad person could actually cause all these problems,
2: right? And I always thought it was the, the Barry Bonds, and I forgot how good those teams were. But yeah, there's two super disruptors, and one is the malingerer—the guy that suddenly has to has to take a day off when Clayton Kershaw's on the mound, right? And then there's the guy who's the complainer and is always trying to recruit other guys. Oh, yeah, you're getting screwed, too. I'm not the only one. And that's unfair. And why is that guy playing? And, and those guys can eat away and create huge factions in a clubhouse that is just like death.
1: And then you, I, we love, of course, talking about basketball with the Miami Heat here, down here in South Florida. And you bring the Golden State Warriors involved and you spent time with Steve Kerr and talking. And of course, that whole chemistry of Durant and Curry and Draymond Green and and all that mess that goes on. And we still talk about, I'm telling you that if you listen to these shows, it's like, did Curry, you know, why was it, why wasn't Durant beloved? Durant just once loved. It is all about chemistry for him. And it was interesting how you tried with talking with Kerr and talking with the people at the Warriors understanding where the whole Warriors team chemistry is and when the thing broke down between Draymond Green and Kevin Durant.
2: Right. That was a fascinating thing, you know, because uh, Draymond was really acting like a jerk. You know, just just calling, you know, because Kevin Durant called him out and then he has to call him out. And what was fascinating was how they resolved it. And Draymond Green, for you know, we see him; he, he's just a uh, you know explosive on the court, and and can play kind of dirty and and all that. But he totally owned it. It took him a little while. He and Kevin Durant met a couple of times, and he actually listened, and he thought that's what it takes, and that's leadership, really. It is. It's like, okay, I am actually disrupting this team. I am weakening this team. And so he owned it. And he was, and I've never seen this happen before, frankly, in all my years in sports, that Draymond Green addressed it publicly and called himself out. He said, I was being, and I forget the language he used, you know, a baby or, or whatever it was. But he just called it and owned it publicly and took questions and answered all the questions and said, I need to be better and he said his own baby son was like, you know, Dad, what are you doing out there? <laughs> you know, you look like an idiot. Um, and he did change. He did change. And Kevin Durant saw that. And that healed it. It, it did. They got back on track after that. And it was, it was interesting to see how leadership manifests itself depending on the culture of a team.
1: You did stru- and you did emphasize in the book. I liked how you said when there is good team chemistry. Look, things go wrong. There's going to be fights. There's going to be problems. You mentioned the Giants team when they had a, a dispute between the evangelical side and the teams that want the players that want yeah. to party all the time. But when they have good team chemistry and there's that communication, and it's not just that in the locker room. It's even during the game when when they're when they're losing in a game. And you almost I thought about the Nationals, Washington Nationals last year when they kept going. You know, just their comebacks and how they were over to overcome everything. And it's almost because. That chemistry helps them overcome the problems more than if you don't have bad chemistry and something goes wrong, then everything just falls apart. But then somehow these teams, when they have that good chemistry, when things are, when there are problems, they resolve them and, and go forward.
2: They do. And, and that's when you have like, you know, there, I'm sure there are layers to team chemistry. You know, I really could have researched this for 30 years and, <laughs> and still be scratching in the surface. You know, it's just, Endlessly fascinating. But the best team chemistry teams are the ones that become like a military company. Like you're in the Army and you're on a battlefield and you ask any soldier who has ever seen combat and they're trained for this and boot camp, everything goes into not only their technical skills and their their physical conditioning. Boot camp is hard because... It bonds the players together. Totally bonds them together. So that when they're out in in war, in battle, they are out there fighting for each other. It's no longer God and country or, or, or some, you know, concept. It's for the guy next to you. And so their commitment to purpose it begins with this purpose, we're doing this for our country, you know for our, for the Marines, whatever. The commitment to purpose melds into commitment to each other, and you hear about soldiers saying i'm you know they're they're wounded, I've got to go back out there, I've got to go back out there with my guys. I've got to take care of them." And sports can have a version of that. And I saw it on those three Giants World Series teams. You know, they played for each other. And you know what? When you play for each other, even at a business, you know, when you really feel committed to this group of people trying to accomplish this one, this thing, you are going to never be without motivation. Because if it's your teammates or your colleagues that are motivating you, they're right at hand. You don't have to kind of gin up this like, oh, yeah, the country. Oh, yeah, you know, the bottom line. Yeah, let's just try to meet my sales goal. You know, that doesn't get you, your juices flowing, right? But your colleagues and your teammates can always get you motivated. Um,
1: we've talked to Joan Ryan, author of Intangibles, Unlocking the Science and Soul Team Chemistry. It's available um, right now on uh, Barnes & Noble, Kindle, Amaz- uh, Amazon, everything. But uh, Joan... Great interview. Thanks for coming on. I love this book. And said it's a book that anybody should be able to read. If you're in, if you just are talking to people, you probably need this book. So thank you so much for writing this (laughs) and actually applying it to sports because someone, people who follow sports, and again, we talk about this all the time in sports. And I don't think people realize how much time they spend talking about dynamics of the locker room more so than just what happened during the game.
2: Exactly. I mean, studying team chemistry was studying human nature. I mean, it, it really was. And I'm so glad you got that from the book, Ira. And um, really thank you for giving me this platform to talk about it. I could, as, as you can tell, I could talk about it all day.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Joan. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much.
2: Uh, okay, Ira.
1: Great stuff there from Joan Ryan here on Ira on Sports. So, Ira, before we wrap it up, what are you doing this week? And we've got big plans for next week's show. I am so pumped about next week's show. John Pessa, we had taped this interview before. It's an amazing autobi- autobi- biography on Yogi <laughs> Bear. And I, Yogi Bear is very underrated. Uh, one of the greatest Yankees of all time. and John- he, he went from, you
0: didn't really think he was that great to you think he might be the best player ever. So the well, book is good.
1: I think the book is, I, it's 500 pages. It's its just, and it just reads, it's just a great read. And John is a great guy and I've, I'm so glad he's on the show. And then the week after we take this interview and we're going to build up for us. we actually had Brett Michaels and yes. lead singer from Poison and on uh, rock, rock of Love, Love, Love TV show. And TV. Yeah. Like, if you like anything on media, he's involved. He sings country, he sings rock, he's sold 50 million albums. And I was trying to get someone else that who has same publicist, and they go, "Brett Michaels would love to come on your show because he's a big sports fan and he's a Steeler fan." And we talk Pittsburgh Steelers, and this guy loves sports, so we talk a little about his new a little about his new book that he has, and a lot about the Pittsburgh Steelers and about football and everything. It's a great, great interview.
0: Ira, I got to tell you, I've been in radio for over eleven years, and there's a lot of interviews that I see come up, and I anticipate the person's going to be a terrible interview or anticipate they're going to be a great interview. I didn't know what to think about <laughs> Brett Michaels. He would, might be the best interview I've ever heard in radio. He was so engaging and just overall, that was an amazing interview. I can't wait to get to to, uh, to
1: air it for everybody. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he came on. He's talking about the charities he does. And he loves... West Palm Beach. He loves this area. Yeah. He's done so many charitable deeds for this, and he's just fun. I mean, he, you can see his the breadth of his talent from the reality TV shows. So he was on The Masked Singer and, yeah, and did The, the Masked banana. Singer. The <laughs> I mean, it's just it, 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 when The Celebrity Apprentice, and to, from the from being the lead band, the singer for Poison, and then do country music. I mean, so many number one songs. It's just a great. And then he just played. I, I, he was on Fox the other day, uh, their morning show, playing Every Rose Has the Thorns to <laughs> High School Graduates or something like that so yeah. and he's a great guy great interview oh i just cannot wait we're, we're we did want to air we want to air it in two weeks to build up for it but i cannot wait for everyone to hear it
0: we are out of time though i want to thank uh, joan ryan so much on behalf of ira and mike let's talk next monday night iron sports